Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Cecilia Mitchell, chair of the club's member-led Middle East Forum. Special welcome to new members and to the consulate and to everyone else. Um, this is a rather personal um, program for me, partly because my mom lived in near Haifa in the 30s and went back to Vienna to look for her parents on November the 9th, 1938. Some of you may remember Kristallnacht. And um, I've also um, felt very strongly about the need for peace in the Middle East. And I'm so grateful to all of you people working for peace. And I guess with that, I will turn the program over to our moderator for today, Benafshi Kanush, Dr. Benafshi Kanush, who is the vice chair of the member-led Middle East Forum. Thank you. It's great to see everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Dr. Banab Sheikh the Vice Chair of the Club's member-led Middle East Forum and the moderator for today's program called the Sharaka Project and the Abraham Accords. We are very pleased to host this program on-site at the Commonwealth Club. And a reminder to our online audience to please submit your questions via chat. The Abraham Accords uh, that was actually concluded by September 15, 2020, and joined by the United Arab Emirates, and later on Bahrain, and I understand a normalization process that also brought Sudan and uh, Morocco on board, to build peace with Israel is an important platform to launch deep mutual understanding across diverse socioeconomic, political, cultural, um, and perhaps other new and emerging forums that a younger generation, such as our distinguished panel here, will be able to explain more about. And the aim of it, obviously, is to build bridges between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished panel. Uh, we are joined today by Dan Pfefferman, as well as other panelists, and I will proceed to uh, invite each to say a few words of about five minutes, after which we look forward to the question and answer period. Dan Pfefferman is an Israeli-American thought leader, a researcher, and an author. He is the Director of Communications and Global Affairs at Sharaka and a fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute. Please. Oh, there we go. Thank you so much uh, for uh, being hosted on this uh, illustrious stage and, and for having us here. Uh, anywhere where I saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar appeared, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be uh, sitting also. Uh, quite the honor. Um, so my name is Dan Pfefferman. I'm uh, directing global affairs and communications at Sharaka, a project. Uh, Sharaka means partnership in Arabic, uh, by the way. A project founded by young leaders from Israel and the Gulf, um, after the signing of the Abraham Accords in order to translate the governmental peace agreements to the people-to-people -people level. Uh, we've seen in the past that uh, such peace agreements that 
uh, Israel has signed with other countries never made it to the level of the people. We feel that we have a unique moment in history uh, to undo uh, generations of conflict, generations of uh, division, uh, generations of seeing the other as an enemy instead of as a potential friend, and uh, despite differences, looking at ways in which we can work together uh, to bridge, um, obviously, those gaps, but work together on the many, many problems that we have across the region, whether they be from extremist elements or climate change and, and sustainability and, and water issues. Um, and so w this is a new way. The Abraham Accords have offered a new way for us to be able to work together. Uh, I personally, um, like, like every Israeli, spent many years of my life in the Israel Defense Forces as a Middle East analyst uh, and an expert. Um, and so I had one sort of relationship with the Middle East, looking at it as an observer, as a student, um, uh, not necessarily looking for possible friends across the region, but there was also that. Um, on personal level, my family is the story of the Middle East. Uh, my family is from an Iraqi, Baghdadi Jewish heritage, and so we've always had that personal connection as well. And when the Abraham Accords were announced, I had... Um, I, I took a chance, jumped on a plane. First, I'd been networking with people in the Gulf for a long time, but I jumped on a plane and I went to the UAE uh, to get to meet people, to get to understand what's happening there with as open a mind as I could, and I was blown away by the openness, by the moderate uh, version of Islam, by the individualization, by the willingness to, to be forward-looking, Things that, as Israelis, we don't get to see in our media um, and, and you know, the way that we, we unfortunately have to see or have brought up to see the region. And um, so I've devoted the last year plus of my life. And uh, since the summer when I was recruited by Sharaka um, to join these efforts and to join uh, uh, my friend Omar here, who was already working for Sharaka at the time, um, to be able to take this and do this full time and be able to build bridges um, so we are, we have brought delegations from Israel to the Gulf, from the Gulf to Israel. Uh, we're working now with uh, Shama on expanding our efforts to Morocco and doing as much as we can online to be able to create a movement of young people who want to think differently, who are willing to talk to each other um, and look at the commonalities and, uh, and be forward-looking and pragmatic and, uh, and build bridges. So thank you. Thank you so very much for those uh, remarkable remarks. And it brings me back home to a time in the Middle East where many of us really didn't grow up much th distinguishing between the Jewish and the Muslim population. For those of all, for those of us in this room who have who are either as old as I am or have some long historic memories, they will they will remember that there was times like that. Um, and I hope that your efforts will revive that. Um, mm. It is my great pleasure now to introduce our second panelist, Javi Buzu, who is a Syrian-born American journalist of Kurdish descent, and she is formerly the chief of the Washington Bureau of Orient News and main host of the Access television show. Please. First of all, thank you so much for having me today. Um, I was born in Damascus, Syria. My mom actually was born in Aleppo in the Jewish quarter. And we talk um, about the Jewish history in the region, the Jewish uh, communities being really ancient, actually. Um, 
I learned from my mom about her friends and how when the Assad you know, regime and before that the Ba'ath Party, um, <clears throat> it's an Arab nationalist party that was actually doing systematic abuse of the Jewish community. My mom lost her friends one after another, so I grew up um, who were leaving Syria, basically uh, running away because of those policies that were carried out. Um, and then understanding from my own father, who is from Damascus, that um, you know the Jewish history in Damascus, for example, that is so ancient that it's within the walls of the old city of Damascus. This is where the Jewish quarter is. So those are historical facts that I grew up learning, but I did not see anywhere, anywhere else. And what we saw was actually a very anti, um, anti-Semitic, but also a culture that also um, promoted uh, intolerance and hate in general. And I think the conflict with Israel was just another way of promoting this ideology that took over the Middle East. And being a minority myself and being a woman, you know, this definitely was the environment that was capitalized on by the education system in Arab countries and in the media. So people who are, for example, pro-peace as the only solution and the only way forward were marginalized, punished, in many cases killed. Um, And as a journalist, when I grew up, I believed that a journalist, um, not only the right, but the obligation of a journalist is to share the truth and to take a role of an educator to tell the people about the realities that are not being presented. So before the Abraham Accords, I started um, in my TV show, The Access, actually. I had voices that were not shown in Arab media. Um, I had a rabbi who was helping Syrian refugees. Um, And uh, we talked about, for example, a a program by the IDF. You know, as you know, there was a war in Syria that continues. Uh, Now the situation is different, but... After 2011, there was a lot of atrocities that were committed. And uh, I covered, for example, the Good Neighbor uh, project by the IDF, where there's hundreds of thousands of Syrian families who were helped, but that is nowhere else to be found in the Arab media. So, you know, understanding that media has plays a major role, I actually, when the Abraham Accords happened, and I think that's for many in the Middle East who've suffered so much from this lack of tolerance, from just a culture of a lot of hate and negativity that we, um, there's an opportunity finally for people to get together like we see now with the organization like Sharaka, but also having shows where people are able to come out and talk and learn from one another and, and, and just share thoughts and ideas. So I started a show called Middle East Rise and I had a couple of shows when I had a, a rabbi, a sheikh, and a priest, which is the beginning of a joke that people were like, is that a show or... Um, but it's a very important conversation. And people, I was very pleasantly surprised that this is in Arabic. And people actually, we had few people trolling the show, but a lot of people were just asking questions. And people were sending videos saying that they actually want to learn about Israel. They want to, um, they know that the only solution is peace and that people who are pro-peace should be proud of being pro-peace. And I actually believe that us being here today is so important because, as you know, the climate in the United States, uh, the political climate, and the polarization has also affected our discussion here, um, which should not be the case because um, what happens in the Middle East is different, obviously, and it does not stay in the Middle East. The Middle East is very important to us. I believe it's a national security 
um, interest of the United States, and at the same time, um, it has nothing to do with our domestic issues of who signed the accords based on which, uh, you know, president in the White House or not. So um, having, you know, people from the Middle East talking about these issues, I think it's really important and timely. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for that very delightful and refreshing uh, remark. And it brings me back to these ancient stories of, of how our histories are really embedded in the Jewish culture. Um, in Persia, we were told that three Jewish wise men made their pilgrimage to find Jesus when he was born. And we were also told that it was the Jews who convinced Ferdowsi to write an epic poem of Persian language to glorify it. So I think we're part and parcel, and back to what you just said, to be a lover of peace would mean to see ourselves as Jews, Christians, and Muslims at the same time. So with that, we now have, I believe, a Muslim speaker um, who um, I'm delighted to introduce as our uh, third panelist, Omar Al-Busaidi. Omar is the CEO of Sharaka USA, a Fulbright scholar, and an entrepreneur. Please. Thank you so much for having us today. It's a true honor. And uh, my name is Omar Al-Busaidi. I'm from the United Arab Emirates. Um, so uh, for me, growing up in the UAE, just to give you some context, if you haven't been there yet, but if you, you, know, if you haven't, then you have to go now because it's the best time to go. We have the Dubai Expo. So um, the UAE has about 9 million people, out of which the Emirati citizens like myself, we only make up about... 950,000. The rest is people from all over the world, people from different backgrounds, religions, um, uh, Jews, Christians, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, etc. So we, 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 have, we have all these people from all over the world. And growing up, I used to always ask myself and I asked other people around as well, how come we don't have um, Israelis living here? I mean, I met Jews, but then, then, of course, you hear the stories because of political reasons, etc., However, in the UAE, we do have differences. You know, there are differences with other countries as well that we have diplomatic relations with, but we still engage with them diplomatically. So it would only make sense to establish those relations. So then I don't know, maybe the government read my mind. Next thing you know, uh, you know, there was steps that you could see that were being taken to kind of open those doors to normalizing relations with Israel. In fact, in uh, sometime around tw 2016, uh, the UAE established something called the Ministry of Tolerance and Coexistence. And it didn't make sense to me why they would se set up an organization like that when already we did have tolerance and coexistence in the country. Then slowly you would see that the UAE introduced something called the UAE Moral Education in schools to educate students about accepting people from different backgrounds, different countries, etc. Then surely after that, the Pope was invited was invited to come to the UAE. So it was the first visit for him in the Gulf region uh, ever. And he was invited to come and see the, um, uh, the, 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 the oldest religious site of the UAE is a Christian monastery in Sir Banias Island in Abu Dhabi. Um, they also saw, uh, we have a mosque called uh, um, uh, Mary, Mother of Jesus Mosque as well. So they saw all of these things and he was like, wow. And then next thing you know, uh, Dubai announced that uh, they invited Israel to participate at the Dubai Expo, um, which is going on right now till the end of March. And surely, you know, last year we all saw the historic moment when uh, the UAE 
uh, and Israel uh, with Bahrain and the U.S., of course, signing the Abraham Accords, which was awesome. And I think it was uh, highly anticipated by a lot of people from both countries. And um, as soon as those, was, that w- those accords were signed uh, and uh, the flights were open uh, between the two countries, um, the first five months, there was like 180,000 Israelis that flew to Dubai. You would, everywhere you walk around, you just hear Hebrew. I mean, actually, till today, you only hear Hebrew everywhere. Uh, they were really excited. I mean, Dan was one of them who, who went there, and he told you his experience. Uh, we were really happy, and we're like, you know, finally, um, you know, from a people-to-people perspective, we got to engage and got to learn from each other and see each other and see how many similarities we, we have with one another. And we're like, wow, this was... Uh, you know, kept away for so long, and and we're we're getting to really just learn and and have that conversation about everything, um, and yeah, so I'm I'm really proud that my country uh, took the step in um, to lead the way for Arab states to follow through, and then we saw shortly after, as you mentioned earlier, um, Morocco and Sudan, and inshallah, oh, God willing, we will see more countries as well, and and of course Bahrain. Um, and uh, yeah, this is uh, just uh, this, my, my experience of how I joined Sharaka with that is because I've been super supportive about the Abraham Accords. I was, it was on, um, uh, I was very active on social media, being interviewed by different media outlets. And the founders of uh, Sharaka uh, reached out to me and said, listen, you know, you're from the UAE. You support the Abraham Accord. You're, you're in the U.S. Why don't you uh, represent Sharaka? And that's why uh, I'm now the CEO of Sharaka USA. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think if any of us had any doubt about the excitement that the Abraham Accords has created in the region, all we need to do is listen to, to Omar's um, voice. It, it really is exciting to, to be a, a part of this important history, a part of a generation that has so much to contribute to this initiative. And um, with those words, I'm delighted to introduce our fourth panelist, uh, Shama Meshtali. Shama is a Dubai-based Moroccan advocate for interfaith dialogue and a consultant for peace and sustainability. She is also an artist, a feminist, and CEO of Moors and Saints. Please. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Um, I loved what you said about um, the interconnectedness and the syncretism between Islam and Judaism in the region. And our hope through the Abraham Accords is that we can revive that syncretism and those relationships because they were crucial to the foundation of the Middle East and North Africa as we even know it today and the cultures we know and consume today. Uh, My name is Shama Mishtali. I grew up in Casablanca, Morocco. Um, until I was 17 years old. I grew up in a Muslim context, in a Muslim family, though my grandfather from my father's side came from a Jewish indigenous Amazigh family from the Atlas Mountains. And um, it was quite difficult to kind of recognize the fact that we had Jewish blood growing up in a country that really framed its identity around Arab nationalism for obvious political reasons and, uh, and, and uh, around um, Muslim identity solely. And I started to kind of push the boundary around how we talk about our identity in North Africa as a result and uh, started taking questions around identity to public spaces. Because, of course, like Havi... And I'm sure like you have uh, started to mention, um, our fathers and our grandparents grew up in this 
very deep, intimate, um, close relationships between Jews and Muslims. And so I heard all of these stories from my father, who grew up in a very mixed Muslim-Jewish neighborhood. Um, he had a, a breastfeeding mother who was Jewish, and then all of a sudden uh, she left Israel when he was six years old, and it was quite a disruptive event for him. All of his foundational early relationships were with the Jewish community in Morocco. And so I grew up really nurtured by those stories, and when I went to public spaces, uh, the narrative and the rhetoric around our history and our identity was different. So I wanted uh, for our media and our history textbooks to start to reflect uh, the realities that my parents lived through and my grandparents lived through. So I, tr I started using art to express the complexity and uh, uh, the multitudes that we find in the Middle East and North Africa in terms of ethnic and religious identities. And um, I, I did that strategically because when I started voicing uh, those issues in school, for example... I was met with a lot of resistance, and people didn't want me to to advance that kind of rhetoric. Again, the region has been really traumatized by multiple historical events. So identity politics sometimes um, are really scarring uh, in terms of discussion. And so we have to find ways to facilitate those discussions. And of course, pre-Abraham Accords, it was quite difficult. So I used art and uh, visual art specifically for about 13 years, um, and I started taking my artwork to exhibitions and sort of public spaces in uh, Morocco, but also in Europe and in the U.S., uh, toured throughout the U.S., uh, giving talks about the indigenous Amazigh Jewish history of North Africa that goes back for more than 2,500 years, and also highlighting these historical links between Islam and Judaism. As you said, there are multiple scholars and politicians who are Jewish within the Muslim world that were foundational for the building of Islamic civilizations, especially when you look at Andalusia. Uh, the Hebrew language went into this, its golden era uh, because of that close proximity with Islam. Uh, so really I've been committed to reviving pluralism in the region, uh, and I'm building an NGO sort of in this direction at the moment because finally we have the political sort of approval um, and, and openness and doors to make the work that I was always doing uh, more scalable uh, and sort of more mainstream. And in the context of the Middle East of North Africa, we need political blessings uh, because most decision-making is sort of a top-to-bottom approach. So we need the, the vision of a leadership that sort of uh, goes in this direction of reviving the pluralism and the depth and the multitude of the history of the region. Um, and we're, we're seeing a lot of that, uh, luckily. So we're excited because this is a historic moment and it has incredible, incredible uh, possibilities to repair um, and to heal the wounds of the multiple historical uh, traumas that we have experienced in the region. Thank you so very much. <laughs> to all four of our um, panelists, and I'm sure whoever is in 
this audience today is as eager as I am to hear more. It's as if you've only touched the surface of a very deep and important story that we are all dying to hear more about. And above all, we want to hear how you came into this onto this path. Um, truly, about each of you, how did you get involved in peacemaking and building bridges? And a question from one of our um, members of our audience is, by the way, how do your families feel about it? Mm. Should we start with you, Dan? Gladly. Um, so for me, uh, it's an easy one. Uh, as I mentioned, um, we've always dreamed of peace. Um, every Israeli I know has always dreamed of peace. The Jewish world, we say it literally in our prayers three times a day. Uh, may God bless the world. Uh, the God of peace bless the world. May we have peace in the world, in Israel and upon the world. It's something that is within us. Um, the desire for peace with the Arab world is something that crosses all political lines in Israel. How we get there is a different story. But that desire for peaceful relations has always been there. Um, and, and like I said, on a personal level, having that family connection, as most Israelis do, by the way, to the region, is something that has always drawn us. We always felt like we're a part of the region, but we couldn't act on it. We weren't allowed to openly go to these countries. Uh, those of us with foreign passports maybe could go and pretend that we're not Israeli. But um, So this was an opportunity. Uh, I remember watching the Abraham Accords, um, even before I started getting involved in these activities, just out of, as Omar said, out of sheer curiosity. I want to get to know these people. Now, growing up in the States, I had uh, many uh, Arab and Muslim friends, especially at university. Um, where I went to school at American University. Um, in Israel, uh, it's less common, although it is increasingly common uh, for Jews and Muslims to be friends. For those of you who don't know, Israel is 20% is Muslim. Um, it is not uncommon, and certainly we interact in daily life, but true, true friendships where you can sit down and have deep conversations. And I started having those online. COVID, we couldn't travel, but I started having many of those online. I was involved in all sorts of forums of, of young leaders. Uh, I, I launched a policy forum for policy uh, planners and analysts to be able to network and just trade open views with each other. And, um, and you know, every conversation that I had just encouraged me more and more that we are on the precipice of something huge here. The region is undergoing a change. The Arab world is undergoing a change, and it's it, there's a willingness, there's an openness to talk to us. Um, and like I said, in Israel, I think at least 90% of the public was supportive of these accords and excited. So when they actually announced the Abraham Accords, I remember sitting, uh, watching the news with my family, watching the events on the White House lawn, um, and watching it via Zoom with all my friends from the UAE and Bahrain, and there were Moroccans in the group and, and other Arabs from around the Arab world who live in the UAE, and we're all watching it together, crying tears of joy. Um, no less, crying tears of joy at this historic moment. Um, and, and so that when I, you know, as I said earlier, when I had the opportunity to join Sharaka and take this full-time and be able to, to scale this up um, and, and create this movement, uh, I jumped on it. I jumped on it because this is the dream of a lifetime, and uh, I think we can't pass up this opportunity uh, that was created by the Abraham Accords and to really take it and translate it to the people-to-people -people level to create the, the business relationships, the economic relationships, the academic relationships, 
and the personal connections that will give this um, depth and complexity so that even if there's political hiccups here and there along the way, it won't, it won't upend everything that's been achieved. Um, so that's, that's how I join this, and uh, I'm truly thankful for it every day. That's lovely to hear. Please. I, I mean, definitely for me, like as somebody grew up in Damascus and seeing w- how the system is, um, uh, I, I took it up on my, myself that I want to work in the media, that I want to be a journalist when I grow up, and I want to play a part in education. Um, definitely, I um, had um, times before the Abraham Accords that I would talk about it. And I think at that time, my family, who is very intellectual, they're very supportive, they would be worried about me. You know, they would be like, why are you posting this or asking these questions? Like, you know, what, how people are going to react? And I would have people who would criticize me and because I'm in the public eye. Um, but it's really a belief that this is the way forward, that there's a lot of hidden history that has not been taught specifically in the Arabic language. I know that this is actually an issue in terms of the media coverage and the polarization that's happening now in the United States as well, which is very kind of concerning. But this is in the Middle East on a much, much larger scale. So um, breaking the taboo is something that is not common in terms of the media, but I was privileged enough that Orient News, for example, is owned by a businessman who was allowing for that space. It's not a governmental or government-controlled, which is not usually the norm in Arab countries. So um, I was able to do those small things. Obviously, when the Abraham Accords were signed, and I actually want to say what Dan said, I cried when the Abraham Accords were signed because finally we're seeing, unlike even the peace agreements that um, Egypt and Jordan had with Israel, which were just a kind of more of a political peace treaties that were not translated on the ground. Uh, we saw that there is a very famous and a great uh, Egyptian writer, his name is Ali Salem. He decided to go visit Israel at one point, and even though there was peace between Israel and Egypt, when he returned to Egypt, he was marginalized and punished by the government. So it was not allowed for peace to actually happen on a people's level and on the educational level. But with the Abraham Accords, you see that the governments are allowing for the people to people, which is that is what is needed. It's the youth really just connecting with each other, learning about one another, and realizing all of the similarities that everybody has in the region, in the Middle East, and that this is actually how you plant seeds of peace that for our children and our grandchildren... Uh, where they could have and shift that region from, um, you know, somebody who grew up there. There's a lot of destruction and um, militias who are, you know, radical, who have done so much damage. And they have used the Palestinians, for example, to create more chaos and destruction. Um, And this has been across the board. Syria is an example. Iraq is an example. Iran itself and the Iranian regime. Lebanon with Hezbollah. So, And you see the shift that people actually have. For example, in 2006, when somebody would talk about Hezbollah in a way that, okay, well, it's a a militia that is committing terrorist acts. People would, would... They used to be so upset and defending Hezbollah. Today, it's across the region that people realize what... 
who is the bad guy because they've been hurt directly by these militias. And now because of this, people are actually realizing that all of this propaganda and the educational system that was feeding them a lot of lies is actually up to question. And they're questioning and they're learning on social media. And the Abraham Accords allowed for this to become now the norm. Obviously, there's a lot more work to be done. Um, the media is a very important tool that needs to be utilized in education. But this is just the beginning. Obviously, organizations like Sharaka and what it's doing. So I think this is, you know, to answer the question shortly. Um, I think I already explained at the beginning how I came to joining Sharaka, but I'll tell you a bit about my family to your question. Um, my family, we're very uh, diverse, actually. My parents were born in Zanzibar. They were born in Zanzibar. Uh, originally, they come from Oman. Uh, a lot of my family members are married into different nationalities. I had an uncle who was um, married to somebody in Denmark, lived in Denmark since 1975. Uh, my brother's wife is British. We're, we're, we're like the United Nations at home. So we're very global. And another thing on top of this is, even from a government perspective, in the, in the UAE, leadership has always encouraged Emiratis to be global citizens first uh, and, and have that, the, the values um, that the UAE was in, uh, established on, which is, you know, tolerance and coexistence. So that sort of mindset and that environment that I grew up in, from the, the community to my home, it's, was, it was very easy, as Dan said, for him too, uh, to, 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 to accept uh, uh, meeting Israelis, to engage with them, etc. I had all, all the support. In fact, um, my sister organized several... Um, uh, women-only, like, Jewish events at her home. And, you know, we, at the farm as well, they, they had, like, several different uh, events that they organized there. Uh, a lot of them traveled from Israel and, um, uh, and attended um, these events in her home. And, and it's, it's been great uh, so far. So for me, there's 100% support for my family. They, they love that the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, like, carrying this message of, of peace and coexistence and... Uh, um, they just want to see me continue doing this, and, and they want to see more. So, in very short, that's how I got involved. Thank you. Um, so, I started this process of almost decolonizing our understanding of our identity um, very naturally, because I had to make peace with the fact that my family has a mixed story. And then little by little, I started learning that it was not really a unique story. Uh, Morocco had one of the biggest Jewish communities in the region. Uh, there was, in some cases, intermarriage that happened, like in the case of my grandfather. Um, and there were deep relationships that existed in this context. So again, people lived together, uh, shared meals, shared rituals. In Morocco, we have a tradition called Mimuna, which happens at the end of Pesach, where uh, Jewish homes actually open up for Muslims to come over and celebrate the end of Pesach together. Um, and this is these were the stories that we got from people again, uh, but they were not really ref reflected in the way we, ta we taught our history. So the more I interacted and learned about the Jewish history of the region and I exposed it to my community, the more people started to kind of unlearn whatever it was that, that they were sort of fed in the media over the years. And they, the more they started to kind of dismantle 
that otherness and those walls and barriers they had built up um, against one another. Um, so in a sense, uh, stepping into this work was very personal and very natural for me. Um, Morocco also has had a deep relationship with the Jewish communities from Moroccan, of Moroccan descent in Israel and with the state of Israel since 1948. Sometimes it was more open, sometimes it was more quiet. Uh, Morocco also had a diplomatic presence in Israel throughout the 90s. Um, and... Uh, Eventually, things sort of changed when uh, the, new, the, the king in, in uh, 1999 stepped into power. And so he was a young king, was consolidating power and preparing, um, preparing citizens for more interfaith, more tolerance. And so those things take time. Um, and also in the context of what happened in the Arab Spring and the rise of Islamists across governments in the region, I think... Um, if anything, people after 10 years post-Arab Spring realized that an Islamist regime is not necessarily a better regime. And so, yes, the leadership has sort of calculated the strategy and is warming up to Israel in ways that are uh, pragmatic, uh, but also from the sort of socioeconomic and social aspects, these communities have been feeling that Islamist governments have not provided what they needed, to, what they promised. And so they're also looking at alternatives because at the end of the day, people need to have food on the table and they're looking at Israel as a possible partner to deliver, to deliver some socioeconomic results uh, in the context of a new evolving region with the support of the United States of America. And because of this context, the Abraham Accords are not actually... They have been more of a uniting factor in the Middle East and North Africa, across political parties, but also across uh, communities uh, from Morocco to the UAE. Um, so I think that when we consume Western media, we tend to see it as in a very sort of polarized manner. But when we, when, and I was in Morocco uh, a month ago, really kind of surveying the streets and asking questions amongst politicians and civil society and just random people on the street and cab drivers. And people are excited. People, uh, in some cases, are euphoric also because there is a deep understanding, again, of the Jewish history of the country and almost this dependency of understanding Jewish identity and Israel to also understand who they are. Um, so there's a lot happening that I think is not being covered in the West, and hopefully organizations like Sharaka can participate more in this direction and really kind of showcase some of these nuances that are being unraveled in the region. I'd like to remind our audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called the Sharaka Project and the Abraham Accords. You've each told us plenty about the seeds for the Sharaka Project, yes. but I want to ask you to dig a little deeper in your, into your knowledge base and, and tell us really a little bit more about how it came about. What led to the, to the conclusion of the Abraham Accords? Was it a demand by the younger generation? Was it politics? Was it a combination of both? And above all, give us your narrative of it, which I think matters the most. A great question. Um, how did the Abraham Accords come about? They are, <coughs> I think, a culmination of a number of processes, social, political, economic, 
that have been quietly taking place to those who observe Middle East trends for some time already. Um, there is a growing realization among the uh, Arab countries, and my, my colleagues can speak from their perspectives, of course, that uh, decades of boycotting Israel haven't worked. They haven't led to anything positive. Um, that extremist ideologies across the region have only led to harm, irrespective of Israel. Uh, they've only led to harm and destruction and chaos within those societies. Uh, there are common threats um, of radicalism in the region, as I mentioned earlier, climate change, water issues, desert, food security. Uh, all of these uh, are common uh, threats, um, and Israel is one of the most, uh, certainly in, in the Middle East, one of the, but in the, in the world, one of the most uh, economically, technologically, educationally dynamic forces. Um, there's much to be gained from working together. Um, I think there's also maybe a maturation um, on the foreign policy level that uh, you know countries don't have to be beholden to uh, old ideologies. They can pursue their own independent foreign policies, their own interests. Um, and an opening up of minds, uh, especially in the younger generation, as people travel, as people are educated in other countries, uh, the more globalized we become. And you take all of these forces together with one more force, and that is um, across partisan lines in America, the U.S. has been withdrawing from having an active presence in the Middle East. And so the countries that had traditionally relied on the United States um, maybe to protect them against the forces of extremism, against uh, the Iranian regime, against uh, ISIS. We, we tend to not talk about ISIS anymore, but that was a thing up until very recently that caused chaos across the region. Uh, the U.S. Um, in, in administrations from both parties began pulling out and taking a less and less active role. And I think uh, the countries, uh, the Gulf countries especially, but Israel and Egypt and Jordan um, started looking at each other and saying, we need to be working together a lot more for our own security, um, to promote moderation, to combat extremism and radicalization. So the combination of all of these things came together. And I think it's important to say that, uh, let's be very frank about the U.S. role in coming together and being able to put forth the political capital necessary for each, for each regime to be able to go to its own people into the region and show, you know, yes, we're taking a brave step, a bold step. Breaking taboos, as Havi said, is, is, is crucial. Um, breaking taboos and, and taking this step in the interest of each country, okay? Um, and... The U.S. was able to kind of put forth its own political capital for the U.A. It was one thing for Bahrain, another for Morocco. It was another for Sudan. It was another. Uh, and each one, it was able to come to the table and bring everyone together and say, okay, we're putting this down on the table. Now the U.A. government, for example, can go to its own people and say, look at what we're able to achieve, plus all the benefits of working together now with Israel, plus the regional benefits. Um, and, and I think all of these forces came together at the right moment, and it's nothing short of a watershed moment. It's been dubbed kind of the lifting of the sand curtain in the region, and, uh, and it's opened up a wealth of opportunities. Well, for the three of you who I assume are also partly at least based in the region, in addition to what Dan has uh, said, um, and, and very important, actually, uh, remarks, uh, 
Um, can you also touch on the idea of how much of this Accord was really indigenously, uh, an indigenous growth versus necessarily just an imposition that was on the, you know, came to the region by the United States, as some people may inaccurately sum up the whole story. Right. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that as well. Um, sure. I, I think definitely Dan's answer is really kind of thorough on really what has happened. Uh, um, but if you talk about on the people's level, I think it's also the fact that that propaganda that they've been seeing and been fed for so long um, with what happened in the last decade of the Iranian regime, and I know that this is considered to be a political topic, but this is from somebody who has been covering the Middle East and has, you know, was born in, and lived in the Middle East, um, has basically played, um, which has been saying that this is the axis of resistance against Israel, um, saying that Israel is the bad guy. Um, they basically, the people saw the truth in the last decade where this regime and all of its proxies, including Hamas in Gaza, who is holding the Palestinians in Gaza hostages, but we are talking about, you know, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. People woke up to see that these are the forces that are killing them, that are destroying their countries based on sectarian, um, because Sunni versus Shia, in this case, in, in the uh, Iraq, uh, uh, Syria, and Lebanon, but also with other extremist groups who are Sunni, who were also supported by the Iranian regime, like Hamas, even Al-Qaeda. So um, there is that element that happened on the ground that made people wake up and just start asking the question, what else have we been lied to about? You know, what uh, other things were lies? And social media played a role in having people able to connect and ask questions and learn online about things they didn't know before. So there is an, a grassroots awakening in Arab countries that I have seen as a journalist covering and getting feedbacks from a lot of my followers on social media. The vast majority of them are from Arab countries. So the feedbacks that I was getting and the progression of those feedbacks just showed me the difference that happened only in the last five or six years. And obviously after the Abraham Accords, now people have more ability to actually express themselves with their real names, with their real, and then with even videos coming out and saying, you know, I'm from Iraq, I want peace with Israel. There was a conference recently in Iraq where 350 Iraqis went to Erbil. They're coming from all over Iraq, Sunni and Shia. They went to Erbil, Kurdistani, Iraq, and they said, we want peace with Israel, even though the Iranian regime basically dominates Iraq through its proxies and its militias. And their life is in danger, but they had the courage because they believe that this is the right way forward. For example, in Syria, I mentioned this, and I want to just mention, uh, go back to that briefly, you know, Israel basically has a, a very strong military power, and it's been confronting the Iranian militias who are encroaching on Israel's borders. This is for the people in Syria who have been getting killed by the Iranian militias. That represents that there's a force that is fighting the bad guy. Obviously, this is for Israel's interest because they're trying. They also claim they want to destroy Israel. That's their goal. So, But for at the same time, they saw that Israel did the Good Neighbor Project, 
those people in Syria, they were like, oh, we are killed by the same regime and now we're being saved by Israel. So they're waking up to those realities. Also, I had a Palestinian guy from Gaza send me a video talking about how Israel, for example, saved his sister when they were little there in Gaza. Israel um, evacuated his sister to an Israeli hospital and she was treated. But his voice, he could not say those things on Arab media. If he comes, I mean, that was basically the case. Until today, this is something I want to encourage, is to have people share those opinions and those thoughts that basically are not shown. Obviously, they're not shown in Western media also as well, which is very unfortunate. But there are so many opinions, and people are basically now in a place where, okay, there's the Abraham Accords, some Arab countries have signed deals, we want to come out and talk about it. So there's definitely a shift in the region, seeing that this is the way forward, this is the future to flourish and to have a stable society and stable region. Well, you speak of the trends and of this forward-looking idea. Um, so much uh, a question on our minds is, you know, how much of this is a reflection of modernization? How much of it is a rejection of Islamism in the region? How much of it is pure normalization? And I'd love to ask these questions from two of our panelists from the United Arab Emirates and Morocco. I'd like to ask you to, you know, really touch on the UAE's forward-looking vision of, of the Accords. And, and you, Sharma, please, of... of coming from a society where, where modernization and traditionalism still go very much hand in hand. Can you shed further light on this? Vanafshi, mm-hmm. there is an answer for you that I think you're going to love. <laughs> All you have to do is read the latest Arab Youth Survey. Mm. In the Arab Youth Survey which is not only taken from the UAE, literally youth from all the Arab countries, the, the, what came out of this is that the youth demand economic development, innovation, modernism, and, and moving away from fundamentalist ideas. And this is a survey that is literally run by a PR agency every year. And in fact, His Excellency Yusuf Al-Tayba, the UAE ambassador to the US, he actually wrote an article about this saying the, the step that the UAE took by listening to the voices of the youth by, by leading the way of signing the Abraham Accords is exactly the model that everybody on this panel just talked about that other Arab states wa- or the youth in these other Arab states want to follow. They always want to follow the UAE model. In fact, many of them say that they want to like, live in the UAE if they could, but because of, because of how advanced we've gone in terms of you know, not just building the tallest building in the world but, and, and the fastest this and the biggest this, etc., but also offering opportunities. And, and this is what they want to see because the biggest issue that the Arab world has, particularly for the youth, is unemployment. And the things that are also sort of like um, maybe, I don't know, uh, um, uh, accelerating unemployment is uh, climate change and all these different issues that are affecting the region – and, and by signing the Abraham Accords, the UAE, what they've done is they're looking at all the opportunities that they can explore with Israel because they're known as the startup nation. They're known to, you know, Dan was telling me earlier that they produce 90% of their food. We in the UAE import 90% of our food, which is a huge problem. So all of these different opportunities and challenges that we've recognized and we see that is going to affect the future generations, we have to take the step forward, and this is why the UAE signed the Abraham Accords. Well, in the Bay Area, we love the phrase startup. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
So in the Moroccan context, um, it's both the top-down approach and the bottom-up. Um, civil society in Morocco is quite elaborate and uh, really strong. And I myself have been a part of the grassroots movement, really advocating for more understanding between Muslims and Jews and more engagement uh, with Israel uh, for over a decade. And there were people before me also writing um, across the press. And uh, part of that agenda is to also defend minorities in the region. So uh, some of my friends who are really strong advocates of indigenous rights and Amazigh rights um, in Morocco have been defending uh, Jewish identity and Jewish history and visiting Israel before the Abraham Accords and speaking about it in, in the media even while, while they get attacked, especially by Islamist parties and Islamist media. Um, and so, in a way, it's a progression of that work, and it's work that was recognized also politically. Um, the February 20th movement, protest movement, just started uh, right as the Arab Spring started to take shape in 2011, one of, their, one of the demands was to recognize uh, the multitude of identities that shaped Morocco. And so in June 2011, uh, the King Mohammed V actually re reformed the constitution and for the first time um, announced that Amazigh language is an official language next to Arabic, which was a big deal, but also said that Moroccan identity is based on Arab identity, Amazigh identity, and the Lucian Sephardic identity, but also the Jewish uh, component, the core component of Moroccan identity. So in a way, really championing uh, this shift of accepting the pluralism that shaped the region and inspiring people to reconcile uh, their identities. And this is also strategic because, of course, um, violent extremism has been... Uh, negatively uh, affecting the region for decades, and specifically uh, in, in the early 2000s to late 2000s in Morocco. So there was a need to promote interfaith and to promote, uh, to promote tolerance in order to offset some of those forces that were really strong and heavily present. And I'll give you a small uh, story about this. I went to Brandeis University in Massachusetts, um, where I studied international relations and conflict resolution. In my, in my second year, um, I was approached by someone who, who, who was also a student, a postgraduate student at Brandeis, who actually tried to recruit me into an Islamist organization that was banned in Morocco. And you're really using the language of social justice and trying to appeal uh, to my values for social justice and uh, really kind of offering this, this uh, going back to uh, pure Islam as a way to deliver socioeconomic uh, results. And so there was a real threat in the region, and it, it, it still exists to lower degrees, because again, this is part of a vision of the leadership uh, accompanied by the work of several civil society uh, actors. And uh, part of these programs that I think really are worth mentioning 
is something that Morocco championed. So not only are they pushing on the interfaith and tolerance agenda, but they're training women, what they call women ulama or women murshidat, to step into communities to de-radicalize them from within and to speak about interfaith dialogue and to promote this agenda to, to counter extremism. And so there, there has been this sort of both grassroots uh, movement that was being built up and is being amplified, but also um, a leadership vision that, that, that really kind of supported and is pushing the work of civil society further. Thank you for all your remarks. I'd like to remind our audiences that this is a Commonwealth Cup program called the Sharaka Project and the Abraham Accords. And in the interest of time, I would like to target the questions to each and every one of you so that we get more out of you, really. <laughs> uh, forget my exploitation of the <laughs> phrase here. Um, the, the question here is, uh, wasn't the king of Morocco at some point seeking advice from a Jewish advisor? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Not at some point, always. And that's actually uh, part of uh, a, a deep Moroccan tradition that goes back across centuries. Morocco as a modern state goes back to, 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 to the 1200s, so 12 centuries um, of a sort of modern political uh, establishment. And uh, the, the monarchy actually goes back to the mid-1700s, the same monarchy. And they have been pursuing this tradition of integrating Jewish advisors within the monarchy very strongly. Uh, the advisor to the king, his name is André Azoulay. He's a very respected uh, personality and a celebrated person in Morocco. He has opened up the country so much diplomatically. He's attracted um, tourism and investments. Um, he set up um, beautiful musical festivals and cultural initiatives and heads an organization called the Anna Lind Foundation for Mediterranean Dialogue and that really promotes interfaith. So it's all sort of part of this strategic vision to keep the DNA of Morocco as a country that promotes pluralism and that builds bridges in the region. And this is how the king and the monarchy sees itself playing a role in the region and really kind of furthering um, tolerance in the region and, and dialogue between conflicting or identities that are sort of at in, in dispute. And so they see also the Abraham Accords as part of this vision, as a continuation of this vision. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, there's <laughs> a lot to speak to in terms of, uh, yeah, great question. <laughs> and someone in the audience really wants to hear more about your Kurdish background. <laughs> I actually, um, my father is half Kurdish. Um, you know, in Syria, because again, it's, um, the regime is an Arab nationalist regime. So, Nobody basically wants to give Kurdish names to their kids, <laughs> but actually my father did. He gave me and my brother and sister Kurdish names um, because he was very sympathetic to the Kurdish cause when we were growing up. I remember... <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I remember my brother actually showing me one time a paper. I was really like a, a piece of paper. He was like, oh, my God, if, if like, the, you know, the Assad regime would see this, like, oh, my God, our dad would be in trouble. Like, you know, it's about, like, the Kurdish, like, liberation. And, like, so it's been because the Kurds were so suppressed specifically in the Northeast. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so th definitely, but I mean, I'm from Damascus. So the Damascus Kurds are not really considered as Kurdish by Kurds from that region because we don't speak Kurdish. Um, but my dad gave me Havi. You know, Havi means hope in Kurdish. Um, and, uh, but as I'm growing up, you know, definitely I'm very sympathetic to the Kurdish um, pain and suffering that has happened all over for centuries, but it's a very complex issue as well. And, uh, you know, there's the Kurds in Syria, there's the Kurds in, uh, in Turkey, in Iraq, and um, so definitely this is a part of my identity. I'm, I, I believe I, I, you know, embody the, the mixture that is in the Middle East, that's like a melting pot of, you know, because my mom is half Turkish. And I, you can only imagine the, the tension between having like partly Kurdish and partly Turkish and then from Damascus and Aleppo. Um, yeah. A lot of conflict in one a, home. A lot of conflict, which is <laughs> very Middle Eastern. But... Um, <laughs> um, Good training for peace building. Yes, exactly. That's why I truly believe in peace building, that you can make it happen. We all understand each other yes exactly, <laughs> exactly so you know it's definitely a part of my identity and uh i uh, truly believe that the kurds you know deserve their home um and uh, that definitely this is something i believe in but I, again it's very complicated because of the all the divisions and so um my, only my uncle after my father gave his son a kurdish name <laughs> and that kind of was the ending of that story in the family but um thank you for your question <laughs> Unfortunately, we have time for just a few, one or two final questions. But before I jump to those final questions, I want to ask questions from Dan and you, Omar. Um, this is a question not just to you, Omar, but to the United Arab Emirates. Mm -hmm. You know, it is somewhat besieged with the, with the, with, by acceding to the Abraham Accords. And in your travels across California, possibly in the United States, I understand you're based in New York, um, what have you heard Americans say about you and your uh, your country's initiative and the Abraham Accords in general, both positive and negative, honestly? Sure. Thank uh, you. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, so I'll start. Let me start with the negative and then I'll start with the positive. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, a lot of people do bring up and they ask us, you know, and you uh, when you signed the Abraham Accords, did you take everybody into account and of course did you take the Palestinians into the account and uh, yes I mean when we uh, uh, the, the UAE signed the Abraham Accords it's very clear that they mentioned there that one of the things that they recommend is to suspend uh, the annexation of Palestinian territories so that was in the Accords it's public uh, uh, knowledge or, so you can find that online um, and also one of the things that I so what I well, how I address it to them not only there was this but the UAE till today still works with the Palestinian people. Maybe we'd still, you know, because the Palestinian Authority did not uh, support the Abraham Accords, so they, um, they, they, they withdrew their ambassador. However, even though they did that, we still are supporting the Palestinians by providing them COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, we're supporting them. Even when you come to the expo, you'll see there that uh, the Palestinians have a, have a pavilion as well. So we're, we're constantly still working. There's still hundreds and thousands of Palestinians that live in the UAE peacefully. They, are, they, they have awesome jobs, a very good you know, a, a, a standard of living in the UAE. So we didn't, like, for example, like expel the people just because the statements that were made by their government. So from that part of, point of view, um, it's, uh, uh, this is as open as I can be as, uh, about what has happened or the kind of like uh, 
let's say, pushback from some of the people um, in the U.S. and around the world as well. On the positive side, of course, I mean, everybody uh, uh, wanted to see peace in the Middle East. You said this in the beginning. You know, I, everybody that I met over here, they're like, thank you so much for the fact that your country took this step and are promoting peace in the Middle East. Finally, we're, we're, there's a new narrative that the UAE has led uh, uh, to the re- in the region, uh, a positive narrative. Um, uh, and then you see organizations like the Sharaka Project. Um, many of the, us are like springing up now in the region, so we're trying to uh, uh, continue this di- conversations between people-to-people diplomacy, not just on the government level. Uh, a lot of agreements have been signed. A lot of opportunities of cooperation between the UAE and Israel um, is taking place, especially with uh, serious issues. Like climate change is a massive issue right now, and we're uh, working on it uh, very strongly together. Education is another thing as well. Um, I mentioned healthcare and there and so many other fields. So. From a from the positive perspective, everybody is really happy that we took the lead and we're 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 guiding other countries as well, and we have guided and are guiding other countries, and hopefully we'll see this, uh, you know, in the next few years, the the next generation that's going to be, uh, you know, born in this in, the, in that region will not be fed with the same sort of like that narrative that that all of us in the previous uh, generations were fed ever since we came into being. That's beautiful, and. Um Dan, have you initiated any projects for kindergartners through high school and that, that tell them and teach them about your initiative under the Shiraka Project? And to that end, can each of you tell us a brief story about a remarkable project or idea that you've undertaken within the umbrella of the Shiraka Project that can help us leave the room and feel great for the rest of the day and hopefully the rest of the month? So we're a new organization, um, the Abraham Accords are, uh, only go back to uh, September of, of last year, and, and Sharaka was uh, launched in December of uh, last year. So uh, we have not had the opportunity to uh, diversify what we're doing yet to that level of school-aged children, um, but we are trying to speak to as many audiences as we can. We're looking at uh, cooperative efforts between Israeli uh, school children, high school children, youth clubs. Um, we're actually helping to facilitate the heads of Israeli youth movements, uh, youth movements connected to, to environmentalism and sustainability, uh, to come meet Emirati counterparts and how we can build those kind of bridges and connections. We're being approached um, honestly, the approaches that we have are more than what we can even handle. Um, we have uh, uh, youth movements that are connected to sports and health and fitness who want to go out to the Gulf and connect with uh, counterparts. So we're, we're trying to do our best to fil- facilitate this at all levels. Um, we've been approached by model UN clubs in Israel who want to connect to whatever the counterparts are in the UAE. We're trying to build, we are trying to build bridges between schools, um, the high school level for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're just getting going in, in this regard. What was the, the second That's part of the terrific. question? Just any, any idea, any project, entrepreneurship, a chess club. Oh, yeah. I mean, one just short example is uh, we helped facilitate a chess tournament um, organized by uh, an Israeli organization called Chess for All. And they approached us to partner with them uh, on a Chess for Peace tournament on International Solidarity Day, International Peace Day, UN recognized. We managed to get over 600 uh, chess players online at the same time who, who had to openly identify as themselves with their pictures. 
including uh, from all over the Arab and Muslim world, from 70 countries, including from Iran, including from Gaza, who participated proudly in this Israeli-backed Chess for Peace event. I mean, that's just one of um, the Holocaust event, actually, uh, one of the major, and I'll end with this, to, to also helping combat anti-Semitism uh, as one of many destructive ideologies in the region. After the very first uh, delegation from the Gulf came to Israel through Shirak in December, they visited Yad Vashem, the Israel Holocaust Museum, and then went back and launched an effort to educate the Arab world and did a Holocaust ceremony um, with people from all over the Arab world and Holocaust survivors speaking and educating each other online. It was incredibly moving. We'll share a video um, with the Commonwealth Club afterwards about this. Um, um, truly amazing things, and it's just the beginning. And a one-minute brief wrap-up to each of the remaining panelists, please. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the very important point that you just mentioned, which is the age group that is for youth specifically, I think this is the key to creating peace and really uh, planting the seeds of peace. Obviously, Sharaka is doing a great job on this. Um, I'm actually working on a new project, which is um, a TV show that hopefully will be on one of the Arab TV stations in the, in the region that is specifically focused on youth called Yalla <laughs> for everybody to Yalla. Let's go. Exactly. Let's go. Yalla. So exactly. So, uh, you know, the whole idea is that people want to come and talk together, specifically youth, about all their interests, fun things they're doing, music, like playing music together, sharing stories, um, you know, uh, all of the things that, you know, even business projects. Um, so this is something I'm working on, I think, because it's really important that we educate the people who are from, you know, kindergarten up until, you know, late 30s. I think this this is the age group that you want to keep the conversation going with and educate, and hopefully this will be something that will be happening too. Thank you. Uh, all I want to, to say and remind the audience is you have to understand this is a massive change taking place in the region. This is a historical moment and a beautiful moment to be alive. Uh, open your hearts and minds, your ears, your eyes, everything, to, to really observe what's going on there. And, and, and when you see this positivity, please share it with others. We need more people like yourselves to spread this, uh, this, this uh, story of hope, um, positivity and, and, and prosperity for the region. Uh, we're doing as much as possible here at the Sharaka Project. I mean, you can please follow us, Sharaka NGO, on our social media platforms. Uh, uh, this, you know, we, we, we couldn't explain all of the different projects that were, you know, Dan was trying to put down the list. I, I could see, like, he's trying to put down a list uh, of all the projects that we've done and we are doing and we're going to be doing, uh, God willing. So um, uh, please follow us and... and um, do your own part as individuals. It goes a long way. Indeed. Um, I have to say that really the stars have aligned in ways that we couldn't have conceived of before. And so it's really critical that we put all of our resources and uh, all of our work, if we can. And to all, all of us, really, we have a responsibility to play a role to guarantee uh, more peace building and security in the Middle East and North Africa. And this is the time to do that because for both the governments and civil society and the people to be aligned on the same mission 
uh, really takes a lot. Um, and so um, to, to go back to your question about what we're excited about, um, I've been really privileged to be working on an initiative bringing together art from the UAE and Israel for the first time in Jerusalem this fall as part of the Jerusalem Biennial. And for these type of initiatives to be happening today, not only is it reminiscent of what happened in Andalusia and reminiscent of the potential for when Muslims and Jews collaborate, especially on culture, um, but it's also very, very uh, empowering, it's very inspiring, and we should strive to uh, work more in this direction, to really complicate the picture for not just the region, but for the rest of the world and for how the West sees the region. There is possibility, and it's today, and we really have to all, um, to all contribute to, to this movement in however way we can. I haven't slept for over a year. <laughs> um, exactly, exactly. So we really feel that, that this is the time to, to be involved. Thank you. Thank you so very much um, for all your narratives. So important. And in uh, closing, once again, I'd like to thank all our distinguished panel members, uh, Omar Al-Bosaidi and uh, Haiva Bouza, uh, Dan Pfefferman and Shama Mishatli. Mishatli. And do butcher my name whenever you like. <laughs> uh, I'm Ben your moderator for today's program called the Sharaka Project and the Abraham Accords. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 117 years of enlightened discussions, is adjourned. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Join us on November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for a virtual fundraising gala and celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club and support our critical mission to provide balanced, civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2021 to 41444 to register and donate today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.